Hello and welcome to the recording of my conversation with Dan Nexon and Alex Cooley on their book Exit from Hegemony, The Unraveling of American Global Order. My name is Marina Henke. I'm a professor of international relations at the Hurdy School and the director of the Center for International Security. The event was part of our speaker series, Challenges in International Security, hosted by our center in Berlin and took place on December 3rd, 2020. During the event, Dan and Alex explained the concrete techniques and processes that rising powers such as China and Russia use to undermine US leadership in the world. If you enjoy this recording, please let us know and subscribe to our newsletter. Welcome to this third edition of our speaker series at the Hurdy Center for International Security, Challenges in International Security. As many of you know by now, this speaker series is quite unique. It wants to stimulate strategic thinking among our Hurdy students and the wider audience. As a result, all our invited speakers tackle big questions in the field of international affairs at the grand strategic level. How can Germany and Europe preserve peace and prosperity in the coming decades? What role can alliances and international institutions play in these plans? How should Germany and Europe think about and shape the relationships with the most critical states in, in world politics, such as the United States, China, and Russia? Since the end of the Cold War, we have arguably lived in a unipolar world a world under US leadership or what some would call US hegemony. So today we will discuss the processes that allowed the United States to establish this global hegemony and ask whether this state is sustainable, whether this will endure. And for this purpose, we invited professors Dan Nexon and Alex Cooley, who wrote a fascinating book on this topic called Exit from Hegemony, The Unraveling of the American Global Order, which got published just last year. So let me briefly introduce our two speakers. Dan Nexon is professor at Georgetown University in Washington, DC. His research focuses on international relations theory, American foreign policy, and power politics. He's the author of many articles in top international relations journal and the book, The Struggle for Power in Early Modern Europe, Religious Conflict, Dynastic Empires and International Change, which he published in 2009 with Princeton University Press and which has become a must read for any student of international relations and world politics and which was a huge inspiration for my own work and as well for my own uh, book constructing um, allied cooperation. Alex Cooley is uh, Claire Tao Professor of Political Science at Bernard College in, uh, in uh, New York and the director of uh, Columbia University's Harry Mittens Institute. He's an expert on Central Asia and the Caucasus and his research examines how international organizations, multinational companies, NGOs and states have influenced the development, governance and sovereignty of countries in the region. And he has published many, many articles and books on this topic, among others, Dictators Without Borders, Power and Money in Central Asia. Dan and Alex, we are delighted to have you with us today. Dan and Alex, the floor is yours. 
All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for having us. Uh, there's a bit of a mutual appreciation society going on here. Professor Henke's work actually influenced this book. Um, so we're going to be giving our presentation basically in two parts. I'll be talking for hopefully half the time, uh, and then Alex will uh, will take it over. You know, our talk is uh, is about our book, but it's about our book as applied to the question of what Biden can or can't do uh, to restore or to uh, safeguard or conserve U.S. leadership. Uh, we wrote the, the book came out in 2020 and note that the cover very much reflects that. Um, we're pleased that this will soon, and here there's a little bit of fingers crossed going on, seem out of date. Uh, maybe we'll get a, a new picture uh, of, of Biden's back, right, for the paperback edition that's coming out. Uh, but um, nonetheless, uh, Nonetheless, this is sort of, uh, this is where we are. So the question is, um, can Biden stop the exit? What we're going to do is we're going to talk about our, our main argument, um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about conceptualizing international order and some basic mechanisms of what we call order contestation, that is the politics of struggle over the shape and contours of international order. Here, you know, some of you will find this kind of like obvious. Some of you will find it hard going. The key thing here is that we're trying to sensitize you to the vocabulary we're going to be using when we start talking about the examples uh, of the, the mechanisms uh, of, of exit and its implications. Uh, so let's just sort of start with kind of where things are right now. Um, there's a big debate that's been going on for years uh, in the United States about grand strategy, and it's about to pick up in a big way as we get a new administration. Uh, there are a lot of ideas out there and plenty of people out there trying to argue what uh, U.S. grand strategy should be after Trump and, and particularly what Biden grand strategy should be. There are the restorationists uh, who think that you know we can kind of just go back to normal, and there are some of these uh, still around. They don't tend to call themselves restorationists, but if you read their argument, that's really uh, where they are. We have the retrenchers, uh, sometimes made up, represented by places like the Quincy Institute, a kind of progressive realist alliance, who think that you know this is the hegemony is just bad, 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 and the pursuit of it has distorted U.S. domestic politics and has been bad for the globe. Uh, you have the conservationists. Uh, people who think that we need to kind of, uh, that the United States should be focused on kind of maintaining what it's got uh, and maybe pushing harder to protect that uh, against uh, encroachment by the Chinese or the Russians or other forces that want to disrupt the liberal order. We have the, uh, great, the great power conflict people, I call them the GPCers. Uh, these are these are many of the, the many of these people are um, uh, conservatives. The the Trump uh, national security strategy in 2017 said that we're in an era of great power conflict, and that's become kind of a mantra. But everybody in D.C. uses this, uh, and the position here is the United States needs to uh, go into something like a Cold War 2.0 or a Cold War 2.5, uh, and really kind of take the fight to anybody who would challenge U.S. supremacy. We have the reformers. And a lot of people in the Biden administration probably fall into this camp. Uh, they want to build it back better, as the slogan goes. And then we always have, of course, our, our realists hanging out, you know, our offshore balancers who, who always think that we ought, to, uh, we ought to adopt that position. And then you've got our position, which um, doesn't really fit on a bumper sticker. Our position which is that um, we need to really kind of adjust to the understanding that U.S. global hegemony is gone. We'll reform where we can, but navigate a more competitive environment, but not necessarily an environment of you know, 
sort of unbridled real politic that the GPCers uh, think. So let me drill down a little bit into this argument. Um, our, our key claim in the book is that US global hegemony is over, uh, that the process is really quite far along, uh, and that it's rooted in power transition dynamics. That is the relative decline economically and militarily of the United States and the broader West uh, and the rise of Asia and China in particular. Um, our argument at the, is that, and we still stand by it, we think it's true, is that Trump is an accelerant and a symptom of processes of exit, but he was not a cause, which is why Biden can't bring it back. Um, I want to stress here that we are talking about global hegemony. That is the position the United States enjoyed in the 90s up through kind of the mid to late 2000s. The United States can still exercise leadership in a variety of domains uh, in a variety of regions, uh, but it is not no longer going to kind of have that. It cannot get back to where it was when it stood astride the world like a colossus, at least in people's mind. There are three ways that exit is happening. Uh, there are great power challengers. Uh, that's exit from above, as we call it. There are weaker states and demand side for exit. We call that uh, exit from below. Uh, and then there are counter order movements or uh, often in the form of exit from within. These are groups that oppose and have oriented themselves against an opposition to liberal order, but are primarily interested in, in achieving that, not by engaging in power political competition across state lines, uh, but by taking over governments and adjusting the policy of states within the core of the liberal order. Uh, a big part of our argument, which I just want to ch check here without going into a lot of detail, is that we claim that, that the unraveling of U.S. hegemony, uh, exit from hegemony, does not require great power war. So if you hear a lot about the Thucydides trap, that's interesting. It's a thing we can talk about it. But we don't think that um, it's actually necessary to have a collapse of U.S. leadership, to have this full transition into a different kind of order. And indeed, if we focus too much on the risk of war, we ignore a lot of really important processes that are altering international politics. Okay, so fundamental to our, our argument is this idea about order contestation. Uh, and to understand what we mean by order contestation, you need to understand the analytic we use to talk about international order. Now, our view is that international order is a big, complex topic, and there's no one way to describe it right, but we adopt a particular heuristic or analytic that we find useful for our purposes. We distinguish between what's called what we call the architecture of international order. That's the rules, norms, and arrangements, the rule-based order, some people call it, norms about sovereignty, norms about human rights and political rights, uh, norms about what kind of economic system states ought to have and ought to be governing international politics. And indeed, if you look at a lot of the debate about international order, that's really where things are focused. It's focused on the architecture. Argument, though, is that international order also has an infrastructure uh, made up of networks, uh, hence per Professor Henke's argument, uh, and routine practices and all the kinds of things if you're into military and mill-mill relations, you think about joint exercises or rotations of officers. In the economic sphere, think about you know, a variety of different institutions and other types of things. And indeed, these are mutually implicating. And one of the ways they're actually mutually implicating is through international institutions. Because they're mutually, impl because they're mutually implicating, there are interesting implications for contestation. One is that you sometimes have situations in which actors may be trying to change the architecture, but by changing the architecture, they affect the sort of infrastructure that undergoods and sustains international order. And in the current system, a lot of that is the US hegemonic order. But also you can have sort of uh, attacks or even not deliberate 
efforts that modify that infrastructure, which then can cascade upwards uh, to either deliberately or inadvertently into changes in the architecture. So you have to pay attention to contestation at both levels and recognize that you know, states aren't necessarily out there to change everything. They may be changing one thing and having this kind of blowback effect. We overall use an ecology metaphor, which I, uh, which you'll hear sort of us invoke. You'll maybe talk about niches or channeling, uh, but we think, but but to mix our metaphors, we think that you can think about international politics as like an ecology of different kinds of species of states and positionalities, uh, and we can talk a little bit more about that in the Q and A. Okay, so there are basic some basic logics of contestation. Uh, that we're very interested in. The first, and this is all derivative of a whole bunch of work, and I won't cite everybody that, that we draw on, but the first is what's known as wedging or um, sort of what you might think of as divide and roll and divide and conquer tactics. These are essentially, for example, uh, what we will, you'll hear about a second order inoculation strategies, uh, encouraging counter order movements abroad. We'll talk about this in more detail, but you think about Russia's support for the far right and the far left as a way of disrupting transatlantic cohesion and disrupting the EU and NATO. We can talk about wooing strategic partners, so trying to get states to flip alliances, stuff that was very common during the Cold War. Uh, all of these are examples of, of wedge strategies. Uh, and there's also what we call a brokerage, which I'm actually going to explain through the illustration. So let's talk very briefly about wedging. So this is a really kind of like these are pretend these are just like this is not really Europe and the United States. It's just, you know, it was the map I could pull off the keynote that looked kind of OK. So you have these are these are actors or states or regions or whatever. It doesn't really matter. Um, and you can think about uh, a relationship, an alliance, uh, a, a close a close kind of a set of interactions as generating a, a network tie. Right. And what wedging is about is it's about any of these activities that seek to disrupt that network tie, you know, attacks on that tie. Uh, with the aim of breaking up that relationship. Hence, think about the example I gave earlier. There are multiple instruments you can use to try to break apart relationships, to try to divide and roll or wedge. Uh, you can use carrots. All right. You can use sticks, threats of various sorts, and you can use a combination of the two. Uh, but you can use these in kind of any domains, any kind of good uh, military security, economic, cultural can be used as part of the effort to rearrange, for example, um, uh, opponents or rivals uh, alignment uh, relationships. Uh, the other thing uh, that I've already alluded to is that these can operate at any scale, interstate, domestic, interpersonal, uh, and that actually matters a lot for thinking about the contestation of order. Now, our argument, in part, is that power transitions exacerbate the conditions of wedging. They do so because they mean that, that states emerge, like with new resources or with, with better relative power, who can actually go out and offer inducements or threats that could disrupt the infrastructure of the hegemonic order. You also, during power transitions, tend to see an increase in revisionist state sentiment, which generates uh, an interest in wedging apart uh, existing ordering arrangements. And then finally, uh, there are dynamics related to brokerage, which is what I'm gonna get to next. So brokerage is different. If wedging is about disrupting ties, uh, brokerage is about connecting states. It's about linking up previously unconnected social sites. And this can be a little confusing because brokerage is about the creation of a broker 
its relationship or a subject position. And here, the uh, United States token uh, serves as a broker. It is through the United States that information and uh, relationships travel between the red and the, the green token. So it has uh, a, in, in, normally in a brokerage relationship, when you can establish that, you can create asymmetric patterns of influence that involve being able to, to, to control the interaction among those two sites in some way. Alternative, you can also in some, and this is what happens in multilateral arrangements, for example, as opposed to in imperial styles of role, you can also try to close the triad. You have an interest in linking up all the actors, and that is a very important way in which the United States engaged in order formation after 1945. But what happens during power transitions, which is sort of interesting to us, is that because you have new resources on the ground, new capacity for wedging, you get a change in the way that brokerage operates. And increasingly, weaker states can look out in the world and say that and see that they have other potential patrons, other potential suppliers of development assistance or security guarantees. And that means that all of a sudden, weaker states who in a hegemonic order are dependent upon the dominant actor to get their for 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 their patronage, for their goods, for their for the things they want out of international politics and international life, that all of a sudden they now are in a position where they can play off great powers against one another. And so they can do so for purposes of exit, for just leaving the relationship, which is how you get really big transformations. Oftentimes they just add patrons to diversify their portfolio, which reduces their dependence and the influence of any, uh, any state and it reduces, for example, during a power transition, the influence of the hegemon, its ability to enforce order. Uh, and then they can use the threat of exit as leverage, right? You know, well, this deal you're giving me, these, you, know, you want me to do all this stuff about human rights? I don't, I don't think so. And if you're going to push me on this, uh, I'm going to go to the Chinese or the Russians because they're not going to do that. Right? And these are primary mechanisms under which uh, you get erosion of order. And now Alex is going to talk about how that works in practice and hopefully illustrate why uh, we're seeing big transformations in international order as a result of them. So Alex? Yeah. Thanks so much, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So inoculation strategies are, if we, go, if we were to go back to the graphic, are strategies that regimes use to seek to protect themselves from outside external influences to actually, you know, temper their political reach. And, you know, this is arguably, you know, the big motivator behind this wave of anti-NGO laws, uh, the foreign agent law that you see depicted on the slide in Russia from 2012, the more recent version of which is the undesirable organizations law, where you just create these barriers to entry to NGOs to operate sort of domestically. You stigmatize them, you criminalize associations and so forth. And you know, this isn't just Russia, of course, we've seen these kind of anti-NGO types of legislation focusing on funding and activity, even technological use, right? Banning the use of Skype in places like Ethiopia in over 60 countries, right? By sort of a couple of counts. And so when you think about this contrast in the 1990s, when we think about the original activists beyond borders, this idea that NGOs, transnational actors, spreading liberal universal values, they were quite nimble, they were clever, they got into the seams of sort of states. What we've actually seen is a very effective state backlash, you know, countering their particular involvement. Um, but now let's talk about some of the mechanisms specifically in the book and some of the, the brokering and the wedging strategies. So let's talk about great order contestation. It's been a lot written about the rise of China and Russia and sometimes distinctions between the two in the U.S. kind of think tank world. You see Russia 
tended to be more dismissed as a declining power. The real action is in China. We, we argue this isn't actually a very helpful way to think about it. Instead, we should think about what the kinds of orders are being produced and on what level. And in fact, what you see and what we lay out from both China and Russia are multiple dimensions in the formal and informal sense, right? One is an attempt to create new kinds of ordering fabrics, either through the bottom, as you see in the slide, that's a map of recent regional organizations that are led by China and Russia. We have a picture of this in the book where we see regions like Central Asia and Southeast Asia uh, over the last 20 years, overwhelmingly a part of these new Chinese and Russian fabrics, right? And we can debate whether organizations like the AIB, CSTO, SCO, um, whether these are uh, actually effective organizations or not. But again, in the ecological metaphor, they are contributing to the density of international fabric. These bodies embody a different set of rules and norms. For example, the SEO is specifically anti-universalizing uh, in its sort of DNA. Uh, and then you have these bilateral initiatives that affect international order. The most famous is the Belt and Road on the Chinese side, right? That is not just about infrastructure, as you well know, has many ordering effects, whether it's locking in certain regulatory standards, you know, indebting countries uh, and playing that out, offering an alternative to development finance, whether it's issue linkage to UN votes on policy positions uh, that the Chinese government wants and so forth. So you have this alternative order building going on on the Russian side, I would argue, Russia's unilateral military interventions, Syria, you know, Ukraine, of course, and, and Libya um, are part of that. But then you also see the establishment of new wedging strategies in existing international institutions, right? So this is a slide of the condemnation in the UN Human Rights Council of the re-education camps in Xinjiang, right? So originally we have this letter amongst the green countries, US had withdrawn from the body before. And these are the traditional countries backing human rights norms in the liberal order, Canada, Western Europe, Scandinavia, Australia, you know, Japan and New Zealand. Well. A couple of weeks later, China comes back with eventually over 53 countersignatories defending the Xinjiang re-education camps and proclaiming China to be the guardian of human rights norms. And the Chinese map is in red, the, the, you know, the criticism is in green, and you see just the breadth of countries from different continents uh, who are backing the Chinese position. At the same time, so you have these, 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 these fabrics coming, you know, from, from bottom up. And, 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 you know, we used to say in both the case of China and Russia, will China play by the rules? Will Russia play by the rules? And our point is that they are actually sometimes playing by the rules, sometimes not, but in all cases transforming, you know, the very substance of what institutionalism is. But there are also bottom up dynamics. And Small states don't get enough attention as they should in international relations, but it's particularly in this time of transition where elites in small states see real leverage opportunities by invoking alternative patrons. Pop quiz, this is then President Dmitry Medvedev with a gentleman named Kurmanbek Bakiev of the Kyrgyz Republic. Bakiev, amongst his many kind of IR gambits was uh, infamous for initiating a bidding war between the US and Russia over the status of the Manas Transit Center, a base that serviced major uh, operations going in and out of Afghanistan. What's notable about this is Bakiev announced with Medvedev that the base, US base was very unpopular. Oh, and that Russia had promised a two 
uh, $2 billion aid package in February of 2009. These two things weren't connected. As it turns out, Bakiev took the first tranche of money from Russia. He turned around. He negotiated with the Americans. He secured a much higher rent. He renamed the facility. So he double-crossed the Russians and actually bid up. And you know, part of the demands were also to you know, less, less scrutiny of base-related corruption and his repression and so forth. Uh, and he was ousted part through Russian pressure a year later. So again, you see these opportunities from leaders. Duderte in the Philippines, traditionally a solid ally in the U.S. security system. What has been his kind of geopolitical strategy? It's invoking the options of China and Russia, right? It's threatening the visiting forces agreement, um, revoking it, then suspending the revocation back and forth, demanding increased aid packages from both great powers. And he is part of what we have in part of the chapter, we refer to the rise of the multipolar populace, right? This idea that regimes in what had been traditionally the liberal international order, Hungary, Turkey, the Balkans, the Philippines, as part of their signaling of domestic sovereignty and strength, invoke Chinese and Russian public goods to show that they're not bound by the rules of the international order and that they'll do what's right domestically. What's interesting to us is sometimes it's the perceptions of having alternatives right, more than the actual reality of aid flows. So what you see on the right of your screen is an RFERL graphic from a recent survey um, given to sort of Serbians. Who gives the most aid to Serbia? And the public answered, most of them plurally thought China. 40% thought, you know, China gives the most aid to Serbia. Uh, and sort of Russia at 15%, the EU at just 18%, but of course it's overwhelmingly in reality the EU, right? But again, there is a perception that is also fomented by uh, what we would call illiberal political parties on the ground that engagement with these countries and their ordering mechanisms is good for our country because it's giving us alternatives, it's not locking us in. One could read the Ukraine crisis as a function of order contestation, right? A back and forth between the extended EU partnership agreement and then the counter public and club goods that were offered by Putin uh, to Yanukovych, right? And the struggle over exclusively which one of these spheres uh, would predominate. Okay, uh, and then we have this mechanism of counter order transnational contestation from within. And this is how we read the rise of a lot of right-wing populist movements, including the presidency of Donald Trump. And what's notable here is how much, how we're seeing these brokering dynamics amongst the so-called alt-right or popular or populist right um, in the core liberal world. There was a, a, a very critical sort of and much cited Pew uh, survey of countries, their views of the Trump presidency. And the headline there was that Trump was deeply unpopular in Europe um, as well as traditional allies. But what was buried in that study that was super interesting was that amongst uh, European right-wing populist party members, confidence in Trump and support for Trump had skyrocketed over the last two years, right? In places like Spain, Germany, the Netherlands, you can read them um, right there. And so what you, what's so absolutely fascinating is that the Trump White House itself, contra the positions of its own kind of agencies at DOD and parts of the State Department, started actively brokering these illiberal ties. 
Ambassadorial appointments were a very good example of this. Grinnell, of course, in, uh, in Germany, uh, this is Hoekstra in, 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 in the Netherlands. And what was so disturbing to many European countries was that they were actively supporting you know, far-right parties, um, that they were not being neutral, that they were weighing in on domestic um, political uh, issues. And of course, we've talked about the outreach of Russia to places like La Liga, both parties on the left and on the right that, again, oppose you know, the standard transatlantic institutions. And then we've actually seen some actually very sophisticated brokering. Uh, pop quiz, this is Prime Minister Viktor Orban delivering the keynote speech at the World Congress of Families um, Summit in Budapest in 2017. What is the World Congress of Families? This initially started as an organization run by two Christian right groups in the 1990s, became networked in the 2000s internationally, mostly through associations with a bunch of Eurasian oligarchs that actually started funding annual summits and plenaries. One of them was actually, the last one was in Verona where um, Salvini offered the keynote. And basically this is a kind of anti-liberal uh, type of forum where traditional values are promoted, an anti-abortion agenda, an anti-LGBT uh, type of agenda too, right? So you have a contestation of transnationalism and transnational orders. And in fact, what we've seen historically is that revisionist state often originate from these subnational and transnational political movements, movements that take over the apparatus of the state and actively network and support each other in the sort of political contestation, right? So I think, you know, the important thing to, to, to remember here, and as we get to the final slide here at Implications, is that the genie's out of the bag now. We have intense political polarization in the U.S., but we also have these sort of domestic, or these rather transnational social movements mapping them out and networking, right? And so contestation is the norm, right, as opposed to the exception, even though in the 1990s, we thought it was all going in one direction towards the liberal order. So to, to recap, Biden's election, yes, of course, it does improve U.S. global uh, prospects. So we're not going to see this appointment of kind of, you know, right-wing ambassadors who are actively supporting kind of fringe political movements in their countries, right? So we're not going to see that. You'll see more interest in goods provision in general, right? Not this kind of America first mentality where you're cutting substantially the aid budget in many places. And you're going to see more attention maintaining political liberalism, right? Commitments to democratic norms will be back, human rights norms. Anti-corruption is going to be the big kind of normative agenda and push of the Biden administration. But, you know, according to our argument, this doesn't change these underlying pressures, these underlying pathways that have been unraveling the order since the mid-2000s. And uh, I think, you know, another thing of note here is that these attempts um, to reassert the architectures of the liberal order are also likely to trigger backlash mechanisms, right? EU is just about to pass its own uh, Magnitsky law uh, in addition to the American one. Well, you know, targeted individual sanctions are great for anti-corruption crusaders, right? But, you know, weak state and small state leaders absolutely detest them, right? And they hate them. And so, you know, there's, there's a set that, you know, what we set in motion now will also bring a backlash effect that can be exploited in a geopolitical term. A couple of um, just final observation. One is this kind of um, selective ordering is going to involve the US, um, like the Trump administration did, taking sides. That is with 
both in its allies and amongst its allies when there, we see divisions that they are going to have to weigh in when previously due to order maintenance, eh, we tended to try and maintain balances, especially in regional conflicts, you know, where we wanted to sort of maintain good relations. So an example of this might be weighing in on the Brexit negotiations and emphasizing to the British that they really have to keep, you know, the very basic nature of the Irish border, right, under under sort of previous agreements. So something Biden has already alluded to. And then uh, we mentioned sort of all this sort of intrusive liberal ordering risks a big international backlash to something that China uh, will no doubt exploit, that Russia will no doubt exploit too. So yes, Biden is back, liberal ordering is back, but the context now and the level of contestation is much different than it was before. Thank you. Alex, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. This concludes our series for this year, for 2020, and we will start again next year. So for all our uh, listeners, be safe, be well, happy holidays, happy new year, and uh, we will hopefully see you all when we start again um, in the new year. Bye from Berlin.